Hello, and welcome back to Franklin Covey's twice weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. I serve at least this week again as the host of Franklin Covey's podcast. That is now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast, airing episodes twice weekly on Tuesdays and Fridays, both on audio and video. Well into our 300th episode, where for gosh, close to six plus years, we've been here every week, now twice a week, consistently taping interviews where we like to bring what is our abundance mentality inspired by our co-founder, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, shining the light on people who we think are great leaders, people who have had amazing journeys as perhaps business titans, best-selling authors, researchers, or perhaps they've toiled in private or secret or suffered a tragedy that they're willing to talk about in the hopes that all of us can learn from their journeys. Today, I am honored that we have the business titan and soon-to-be best-selling author. Her book is just released called Walk Through Fire, a memoir of love, loss, and triumph. She is America's first black female billionaire. You know her as the co-founder of BET and numerous other enterprises we'll talk about today. Sheila Johnson, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you. It's quite an honor to be on this program. My goodness. Well, the honor is all ours, I can assure you. It is really a, a duty we have now as uh, uh, investment back in our clients around the world to bring voices to the stage where we think there are great leadership lessons. Some of our listeners are entrepreneurs. Some are intrapreneurs. Some are solopreneurs. Others are people that have just been promoted to their first leadership position, or perhaps they're in mid or senior level leadership, and you have spent a life as a leader, as an entrepreneur. So there are great lessons to learn from your book today. And Sheila, this is not a book review podcast, right? Many of our guests have never written a book. Some have written a dozen books. Sometimes we speak about their books, sometimes we don't. But as I mentioned to you off air, I've been riveted reading a pre-sale copy of your book because your journey has been remarkable. And I want to start with this point. You are the perfect manifestation, perfect example, the ideal model that there is no such thing as overnight success, right? People see you as America's first black female billionaire. They know you from your entrepreneurial activities with BET and Salamander and other initiatives. But the fact of the matter is this was a 50 plus your journey. Would you take as much time as it requires, rewind five or so decades, literally in college, and talk about the painstaking journey you took to build this enterprise that gave voice to millions of listeners around the U.S.? First of all, I want everybody to know my life has been a journey. I still have not reached my destination. But um, if you want to go back 50 years, I had to grow up suddenly at the age of 16. Um, Big disruption in my family. Personally, my mother had a total nervous breakdown and had to really navigate a way of getting through the rest of my high school um, studies and then moving on to the University of Illinois. And I will say this, and it's all in the book, how I just was not prepared for taking an SAT, PSATs, but I had mentors along the way that knew that I had talent. This is the first act of my life, and many people don't know this, but I was a concert violinist and got my degree from the College of Performing Arts and Fine Arts at the University of Illinois. Um, And that was really the first act 
of where I started to become an entrepreneur. I had taught school, but I also had to, um, wasn't making enough money and would travel to homes to teach, which in that first act, I was able to put together an incredible string orchestra that visited the Middle East and by invitation of Queen Noor and King Hussein. So I continued to do that through 1989. But in the meantime, we're starting a media company that uh, went on the air January 25th, 1979, really 1980. And at that point, there were a lot of struggles of trying to get an African-American media network off the ground. It was something that um, was unusual, but it was also during the birth of all of cable. And we struggled with trying to convince advertisers to really um, advertise on the network. Cause as we all know, that is where the bread and butter comes from. But the other thing that happened, which was wonderful, we did have a guardian angel from the very beginning and that was John Malone. And at that time they called him the Darth Vader of the cable industry, but he had a lot of money and he really believed in the vision of starting an all black cable network, black entertainment television. That went from 1980 until about 2002, uh, where we sold the company. Um, that's the second act of my life. And then going into the third act of my life as starting a hotel company. But I will tell you the trajectory over those years were filled with ups and a lot of downs. And I suffered a lot. There was a lot of uh, abuse within the marriage, emotional abuse. There were times where I just knew I had to stay in there and just really make a company work. But in all of that, in the end, I realized that what I had gone through has really made me stronger as a leader today. And if I hadn't gone through that, I don't think I would be here talking with so many wonderful people. Sheila, congratulations on the courage to write this book. A woman of your right. accomplishment and stature and, and philanthropy and personal wealth does not need to write a book and tell kind of your life journey. But you've done that, and I highly recommend uh, everyone listening and watching, you will devour this book that Sheila has written about your journey. One, because it will give voice to this idea that there is no such thing as overnight success, but you also right. give... You also kind of give voice to the idea that everyone's life happens in a series of acts. You've kind of described yours as a series of three acts. Perhaps there will be more, a fourth. And it's a little bit of hindsight. Sheila, would you take a few minutes and just breathe some validation into everybody watching and listening? How do they know what act they're in? Are they in act four? Or do they have more acts coming? In many ways for you, knowing there were future acts also kind of gave you hope for what would happen in the next phase of your life. To the extent you have some insight around this, how do you know what act you're in in life? Well, first of all, it depends on what is your passion. The, and most importantly, you have to know who you are. Um, and I have to say, especially the first two acts of my life, I didn't really understand who I really was. I had a passion and it was the arts. And I think in the first act of my life, that's what drove me. That's what got me out of bed in the morning. That's what um, continues to fuel my life. And to this day, it still does. So I have to say that first phase, if I had not gone any further than that, I would have stayed in the first phase. 
But there are opportunities that come along. And I think this is really important for your listeners to understand. There's doors that will open for you. I don't care what your passion is, but use your instincts and figure out whether it's important for you to go through these doors. And if you do go through these doors, how do you build upon that second door, that first door that you're going through? And how do you build on it from your first act? What I'm trying to emphasize is that all three of my acts really blended together. As a concert violinist, as an artist, the arts gave me the foundation of my life. It taught me how to listen. It taught me how to watch people. It taught me how to be organized. And it taught me how to be vulnerable. And I take that a really strong lessons learned because I then took that part of my life and moved it into the entertainment business where I was able to sit back and really figure out how to build a new company, how to listen to people, how to put programming together that was really going to be valuable to our larger audience. Now, I also realized that even though I had these great ideas, they weren't listened to. I was put down. Um, I was not valued in that second act of life. And because, and, and I will tell you how BET, once it got started, we were only on two hours a week. From that moment, programming slowly grew, but not in the sense that I wanted it to. I saw BET really to be the show that was really going to discuss the African-American culture. What were the problems we were going on, going through? Um, I looked at it as sort of a CNN type format show where we would really have a voice that was going to make things work. It never developed into that because we couldn't get enough audience to prove our numbers, to be able to say, okay, we have the numbers out there. They're watching our shows. I need advertisers to, you know, any up the money. Well, of course we didn't have those kind of ratings so what happened is the video market came in and MTV would not show any African-American videos. So we were able to corner that market. What happened? The eyeballs went up on our network. We started getting the ratings and that's when the advertisers came in. But the downside of that, and I stick to my guns on this, it started out great, but the video market, as you visualize it on the screen, I didn't like the way it was women were being portrayed. And so I then took it upon myself to start new programming, which was called Teen Summit, where I could get a balance of what the viewership was watching um, and educate these young minds that were, that was our market then, that were watching these videos. I did not like the way young girls were being portrayed, but I wanted to be open-minded enough to educate our viewers on what they were watching. I don't mind you watching it as long as you keep it in perspective and understand what you're watching, what you're listening to as far as the language is concerned. It just didn't fit my value system. Now, there were other value systems floating through the network at the time, but they didn't match what I really wanted to do. So once we kept going and Teen Summit was just unbelievable success. It was stayed on for 11 years. I was able to get foundation grants to keep it on. Um, that's when I was fired from my own company 
that I helped start. Um, it's all in the book. People can read about it. I don't want to take the time today to really get into the weeds because I want you to buy the book, of course. But what it did, it taught me some unbelievable lessons about people, how they operate, the lack of leadership, the way they live their lives. And so I was able to take that second act of my life and put it into the third act of my life, which was building a whole new company, Salamander Collection, which we now have seven hotels. We've been, we just celebrated our 10th year. But what I learned in the past has really helped me become a very strong leader into this third act in life. Sheila, that was beautifully said. Your book is titled Walk Through Fire, a memoir of love, loss, and triumph. And you talk in the book about race and racism. And if I have this correct, your, your father was one of the rare black physicians in America at the time. It was difficult to get a permanent job as a black physician. And so uh, you right. moved around a lot. He worked for the VA hospital and had different assignments and such. And you write about, and this may sound naive to me as a white man in my 50s, but you, you talk about how you grew up in a time when, when you took a road trip, your mother would pack food because you weren't sure if you could stop at a restroom or a restaurant because along the road there would be white-only restaurants or white-only restrooms and you would literally have to stop in the grass and eat your lunch and a picnic and use the restroom behind a tree because there may or may not have been black available restrooms. I mean, this is incomprehensible. I know, of course, the history of our country. Talk about the impact that that has had on you now as a leader, as a, as a, as a, as a philanthropist, as a friend, as a human. Well, you know, you said it correctly. It was some really tough times. Um, we moved a total of 13 times. My father was one of eight African-American neurosurgeons in the country. And as you know, you said, there were the hospitals wouldn't take him, and he could only um, practice on um, or operate on black patients. And it did. I think it was like 10-month intervals we kept moving. And this went on most of my life until almost the fifth grade. Um, if people are familiar with the movie The Green Book, there is a green book, and you can still get it over Amazon, where it lists the only establishments that African-Americans, and at that time, Negroes, um, could go to. And they were substandard, and most of the time, they weren't on the agenda of our trip of like getting to Pittsburgh or getting to Chicago or wherever we were going at the time. <coughs> Excuse me. So then anyway, we had to plan ahead of time. My mother was a great cook uh, out of necessity, and we would have to pack our breakfast, lunch, and dinner as we were moving across the country because it was for our own safety. And it, it's tragic to have to live that way, but it was honestly the truth. It helped me build resiliency. And with all of those moves, um, I don't really regret it. At that time, I thought it was a journey. But then I, as I got older, I started to realize that it was really about racism, which I continually and to this day still deal with. Um, but it's a case where you really learn about what's really going on in this country and you learn about life. 
I didn't shut it out. I learned from it. I became smarter about it. Um, and I do write in the book, there was at one point uh, moving to Louisville, Kentucky, where my father refused to have me go through a cemetery to the all-black school. So we were able to pull off the joke of the century, and I went to an all-white school in the second grade because I'm so fair. He was fair. My mother could never show up because she was dark-skinned. But we were able to pull off the second grade where I just went to school there, and I did not have to go through the cemetery. And back then, everyone was tight-lipped about it. Most of my black friends knew what we were doing, and I guess they thought it was pretty neat that it was happening. But it was just a case where I think with all the moving and all the racism that we were facing, it was, it was worth the risk because we didn't know what was going to happen at the other end of the cemetery once we got to the school or if I had to stay later at the school and come back through the cemetery. It, it was pretty scary. But these are risks that we took in life, and these were the realities of what was really going on and still going on. Sheila, I don't want to sound especially naive, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed that part of the book, those parts of the book where you reminded the reader about the struggles. Your parents owned a green guide, a book that African-Americans yes. owned to make sure they were safe and they could stop exactly. at restaurants and, 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 and restrooms and not perhaps be abused or accosted or worse, murdered. I mean, it's just incomprehensible right. that this is the narrative of our country. You became a very accomplished um, violinist and mm -hmm. there were times when you earned your way to first chair and uh, white members of the orchestra would walk past you and refer to you with the N-word and accuse right. you of that's how you earned your way into the chair. You don't share those stories with hate or vitriol or um, anything other than just this was your journey and you triumphed right. through it. Yeah, I mean, I worked very hard for that. I was practicing. You know, I talk about in the book how, you know, my parents enjoyed me playing the violin, but there were times where they got sick of it too. And I would get my homework done and wake up at midnight and practice down in the kitchen where they couldn't hear me, but I did enjoy the acoustics of the kitchen. But I worked very hard for that position, the Illinois All-State Orchestra. It was important to me. And from that, then I was admitted into the Chicago Civic Symphony and remember doing one little short season with Jean Martin on the Chicago Symphony, playing in the first violin section. I think it was either fourth or sixth chair. But it was really a wonderful time in my life. And it was my passion. And it still is. I mean, the music is just so important to me. But it was the music. It was the arts that kept my mind grounded. And it also helped me to relieve any stress. It also helped me to escape things that were happening in the real world. Um, the arts are, you know, it's just an important space in your brain. You know, I always say that we should always have a music room in our brain, in our head. And that's what, ha what has happened to me. It's to this day, I, I constantly listen to music. Sheila, by every measure, you've had a remarkable journey as you written on your book, you are recognized as America's first black female billionaire, as a co-founder and co-owner of BET. When it sold to Viacom, that designation was bestowed on you. 
I'd love to just yeah. have you riff on some leadership lessons. Uh, I'd like you to share three or four things that you did really well as a business owner that others could replicate in their leadership roles. And then after that, I'm gonna ask you to share three or four mistakes, lessons learned that you might advise people to avoid. And you write a lot about them in your book. But first, let's talk mini masterclass in leadership. Three or four good decisions that you implemented or you were a part of that contributed to your success financially, to your impact, and the position you are in now, known as, um, I think it was the Washington Post that just last year named you CEO of the year amongst many accolades yeah. that you've earned. Give us three or four replicable competencies you're proud of. Well, first of all, um, you know, I talked a bit about BT and about making the risky decision of starting a whole new programming that could help educate young teenagers about what they were watching visually on the screen, which really did pay off. Um, and through extra grant, an extra grant through the Kaiser Foundation, was able to continue that program. And then to this day, to this day, I run into the, my young posse. They're all grown up now. Some of them are on Wall Street. But it's amazing how I can walk out a door and I hear my name called, Mrs. Johnson, Mrs. Johnson. And they said, I don't know if you remember me, but I was with, um, I was part of the Teen Summit Posse. And look at where I am now. So I've been able to make really crucial decisions in bringing young people along during the course of all my careers. And I can keep talking about that. And then I know within coming out of BET and making that sale, um, that is another important decision that I decided to make as a leader was to now get my power back and figure out how I could build a new company. And in doing so, and it's all in the book, of some really critical decisions that I had to make and risks that I had to take, I had decided to buy 340 acres that belonged to the late Pamela Harriman. And after living in a town for about four or five years and seeing all of the mistakes the town was making, um, they were in an economic crisis, to be able to make a decision, number one, was to close a gun shop in the town, which had a Confederate flag in the window, buy it out, and turn it into a cafe. I wanted to work on the community and start bringing it together, bringing the arts into the community by building a performing arts center, and then taking the riskiest job of all, but taking that 340 acres and building 168 Roomed resort. I ran up against some of the most unbelievable hatred you've ever witnessed. It was racial. Uh, they claimed that I was not had uh, was not conserving the land. There was all sorts of problems, and it was led by a group that wasn't very friendly. And um, I had to make a leadership call on whether to dump the project or move forward and decided to move forward. As I was moving forward, I then had to make really hard decisions of going to County Board of Supervisors, convincing them that this was going to become the economic engine of Middleburg, Virginia. And because I was able to make those, I don't know, I've lost count of how many I've already done. There were so many 
um, risk and risk. There was a lot of risk taking and I had to make some decisions in a leadership capacity of how to move forward. And one of the things that I had to do was make sure I could put together the best team that understood the hospitality business. And you have to understand, even with cable and then with the hospitality, I knew nothing about either one of those. That's not what I was trained in doing when I came out of college. But I didn't back away from any of this. I decided that I was going to hire the best people possible, people that are smarter than me. And I learned to listen to them, to value their leadership skills in the hospitality business, but also make the decision to take them by the hand and show them my vision and to make sure that they didn't come in with their own agenda. And we can, and then when we go back to the mistakes I made, I can tell you what mistakes I made within all those decisions. But these were the best decisions that I could have made because look at us 10 years later, and we are now the number one luxury hospitality company in the country by USA Today. Now, we'll go back to the mistakes that I made. <laughs> um, we all make mistakes every day, but it's, it's the way you have to deal with those mistakes and don't let yourself get burdened down with the mistakes. Be able to pivot and take another direction in which you do it. I think one of the biggest mistakes um, that I made, especially during the BET days, was uh, really not putting myself out there. I was literally erased from the company. Um, I was trying to put my ex-husband out in front because I wanted him to get the notoriety and the glory. And I was doing a lot of work behind the scenes. That was one mistake that I made. So I got lost in the process. Then moving into the hospitality business and learning from what I had done during the BT days, I was not going to make those mistakes again, but I did. What you have to understand, some of this stuff just comes right back around at you. So what I did in the very beginning is I had hired the wrong people to help me execute my vision, and that was to build the resort. The company was wrong for me. They went through $12 million of my money. Um, they angered the community. It set me back at least two years. So that's when I decided that I was then going to hire the right people. And that goes back to your first question. And then I was able to move forward. The other mistakes that I have made is not only bringing the wrong people into my orbit who didn't really agree with my agenda or didn't respect me as a woman. That was a huge, huge mistake. And uh, as I've moved forward, there are lots of mistakes that, you know, you make, but they're very minor compared to some of the ones that are going to really um, catapult you into the vision that, and, and get to your end goal. Now, I mean, there was one really good thing that did happen. I guess this is in the, the first part of your question, and we did, haven't talked about it yet, and that was buying into sports teams. You know, when men are offered to buy a sports team, they are very excited about it. Women are never given that opportunity. 
And it was a case where I learned very early is to never burn your bridges. And this was a man, a Poland, who owned all the sports teams in Washington, D.C. And over the years, I got to know both he and his wife, Irene. And one day, Susan O'Malley came to me and said that, um, and she was actually the first woman president of any sports franchise in the country. She says, A. Poland would like to meet with you. And I remember that meeting completely. And he offered me the women's WNBA team, the Washington Mystics. And he says, I want you to be the face of this team. And I said, what do you mean by be the face? I knew what he meant. He says, I want you to buy the team. And I said, uh, well, I need to see the financials. And at that time, it was either I said no to him or I said yes. And very quickly, I weighed in my mind that next step. It could have been a yay or a nay, and it really could have changed the trajectory of where I am now. I just said, well, let me see everything. He says, you have 24 hours to make up your mind. I immediately called my attorney. I was downtown. And I told him, and he says, Sheila, you do not want to buy a sports team. I said, if you were offered it, what would you do? And he hesitated. And I said, you just answered my question. I said, I'll be in your office in 15 minutes. I got in there. I said, you get Ted Leonsis on the phone. I talked to Ted. I knew that he owned the Caps at the time. He had first right of refusal for the Wizards once he passed away. And then that left the WNBA team out there hanging. And I said, I'm going to make you an offer. I have the financial wherewithal to do this. I'm going to make you an offer that you should not refuse as a woman and as an African-American. I want ownership into all three teams. I'm glad I was able to pivot and make that decision and really have the financial ability to do it. And to this day, it was one of the best moves I could have ever made. We have won the Stanley Cup. We have won a national championship with the WNBA team. We're still working on our NBA team. But these are lessons, both negative and positive, that I have made in my life as a leader that has really has continued with me to really eat, to meet goals in my life. And I have not regretted any of the decisions I've made. So in the end, whatever decisions you make, whether they're negative or positive, look at them. Nothing is a setback. You look at those the negative things that have happened and how can you improve on them? How can I take the lessons that I've learned from the bad decisions and make them into positive decisions? Because this is the failures are what's going to make you stronger in life. Sheila, you aren't just a class act, you are a badass. You are also the only African-American woman to have a principal uh, shareholder stake in three professional sports teams, as you mentioned, Washington Wizards, Capitals, and Mystics. I was gonna ask you why sports, but you answered the question for me. Hey, as we end our time together, you mentioned that you're kind of in the third um, act of life. Obviously, you're, you're, you're a hotelier, you own a, a burgeoning hospitality company, your book is releasing, no doubt will be a bestseller. What's next for you? Continue to grow my company. Um, I would like, you know, we have seven hotels now. I'd like to get them to 10. Um, I'm not looking at expanding beyond that because I think 10 for us is the magic numbers. I've looked at how the company's growing. We have over 3,000 employees. We're doing very well. 
We have our ups and our downs, you know, as all hotel or companies, you know, are weathering storms, whether it was through COVID or whether it's through a recession, you never know what's going to be on the horizon. But you want to make yourself strong enough that you can really weather the storms that are coming before you. Sheila Johnson, who holds amongst many monikers that of America's first black female billionaire, co-founder of BET, your book is Walk Through Fire, a memoir of love, loss, and triumph. Thanks for joining us today. You're so welcome. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. Mm -hmm.